Good day and welcome to The Buzz, a bank automation news podcast. I'm Associate Editor Elijah Poindexter. Last week I spoke with Naftali Harris, co-founder and CEO of ID verification provider Centilink. I spoke to Mr. Harris about how the growth of real-time payments will impact fraud prevention, along with what his thoughts and predictions are for the fraud and fintech space moving into 2022. We can get right into it. Uh, for the sake of the interview, would you mind uh, kind of going into uh, your role? Uh, obviously, you're you know, CEO and all that good stuff, but sort of your role at Centilink and, and, and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Centilink's co-founder and CEO, um, which means that... Uh, um, you know, I oversee operations and um, set strategy. Uh, I'm in charge of recruiting an amazing team and so forth. Um, our company prevents fraud for banks, lenders, and financial institutions. Uh, we work with over 100 in the United States, ranging from top 10 U.S. banks to new startups that are just getting started. And we work with a number of different uh, fintech partners um, and uh, follow the space very closely. Um you know, hence, I think maybe a good, uh, you know, should be a good conversation about uh, the future of fintech for 2022. Um, we uh, we stop different types of application fraud, so um, that means things like uh, identity theft um, and synthetic fraud, which is when someone makes up a fake person who doesn't exist and uses that to try to steal money from banks and lenders. Does that give you a good overview? Oh yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. All right, wonderful. Well, we'll jump right into it. Uh, this is a pretty broad question. Uh, what have been your, uh, you know, chief takeaways from 2021 uh, with regards to, you know, fraud and security in the uh, fintech macro environment? Um, well, I think a lot of it has been um, that a huge amount of the fraud is actually um, not really being seen by the public. So probably the biggest thing to happen in uh, 2021 um, still coming out of 2020 is um, there's been a huge amount of fraud related to government benefits programs. Um, the fraud related to the PPP, um, I think, is a little bit better known, um, but there's also a huge amount of fraud related to unemployment insurance. Um, and so what's happening here for unemployment insurance fraud is that a fraudster will steal the identity of a citizen. They'll claim to be unemployed and go to the state unemployment insurance agency and say, hey, I've lost my job. And the, um, the, uh, the state will actually uh, be fooled by that fraudster and, and start giving unemployment insurance benefits um, to the fraudster uh, who has claimed to be a citizen who's lost their job. Um, that caused a huge number of losses for uh, the different states. Uh, it's on a state, some of which are, have been publicized um, you know, especially um, California, uh, Washington, among many others. But, um, you know, in total, uh, tens and tens of billions of dollars. Um, but what hasn't been publicized as much, and I think this has been one of the very interesting findings from our side, um, is having stolen all of this money, the fraudsters had to move it into the financial system somehow. Yeah. And that caused a huge amount of knock-on fraud for any institution that touched money at all. So, you know, every bank that we serve, every credit union, all of the fintechs, all of them saw these huge influxes of identity theft attempts. Um, and the fraudsters weren't trying to steal money. They were just trying to launder it. So they were just trying to open up checking accounts or any kind of um, account that allows you to transfer funds um, in order to move the money that they'd stolen. Fortunately, we were able to stop that, but we, we saw that throughout the whole industry. Do you see that? Do you see any of this, I mean continuing on as we sort of navigate the pseudo 
you know, post-COVID landscape, you know, the, you know, as soon as the government may, you know, draw back on, you know, maybe the PPP or PPP loan system or mass unemployment benefits, there could be something else down the pipeline that's just as easy for a, for a fraudster or a potential fraudster to sort of attack. Uh, so do you see, do you see this continuing uh, going into 2022? Yeah, I certainly do. Um, I think this will continue. And I think one of the pretty unbelievable things about this is I think it's really emboldened the fraudsters. I mean, this is perhaps the greatest year ever for a fraudster. Yeah. Uh, I mean, really, literally, you know, tens and tens of billions of dollars. And, um, you know, I think having seen how easy this was to do, I think the fraudsters, um, when the easy government targets um, go after them, I think they will realize, hey, this is an extraordinarily profitable business for us. Um, let's keep doing this, but, you know, for other targets. Um, and so I do expect that as some of these benefits programs dry up, um, the fraudsters will move away from them to other things. Um, but I think having just come off of stealing all of this money, I think that uh, they will be more aggressive than they've ever been and more creative than they've ever been. Hmm. That's so, so interesting. Uh, just to backtrack a little bit. So, you know, to give people an example of sort of what Centrelink does uh, with, with something like just, just your basic, you know, PPP loan fraud, what would be the front to back sort of, you know, what does it look like? In terms of you know what Centrelink delivers as a product, that being you know ID verification and stuff, how how do you guys work uh, in in that type of situation? Yeah, let me let me give you an example. Um, so um, we work with uh, credit card issuers, uh, small business lenders, uh, credit unions, banks, and so forth. So an example you might have in mind is um, you know suppose a bank wants to open a new credit card for somebody. Yeah. Um, before they do that, the bank will send information about that application over to us. So we'll receive information like the name, date of birth, SSN, address, phone number, email, IP address, and so forth about that application. Um, and we, we receive that via API in real time and um, take that information and analyze it. We run it through um, uh, every type of fraud vector that we've ever seen and compare it against all of them. Um, we check each element of that application um, against known lists of um uh, of fraudsters that we've identified and ultimately run it through machine learning models. Um, having done that, uh, this all takes, by the way, 300 milliseconds. Um, we return the different um, risks that we've identified, if any, um, back to the bank. And so the bank will see different risk scores, um, attributes related to risk, uh, flags, and so forth. And from that, the bank will make a determination about whether or not um, it wants to open that credit card. Um, or instead to ask for additional information uh, or take some other kind of action. Um, it's all in real time. It's extremely fast and extremely scalable. Um, we do uh, over a million um, identity verifications every day and um, are able to, um, uh, you know, and are able to stop, to help financial institutions stop uh, this kind of fraud. So you know, that's an example for a credit card issuer, but, you know, we do the same thing for small business lenders including many of whom um, were part of the PPP and, um, um, you know, to do the same thing for opening checking accounts or savings accounts, auto loans, buy now, pay later, um, different kinds of installment loans, uh, utility companies, insurance, you name it. So Does that give you a, a good example. Oh yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Um, all right. So we can shift gears a little bit. Uh, so with the rise of, 
real time or as near to or as close to real time as you can get payments. And of course, this is not just you know Venmo or Zelle anymore. I mean, this extends to uh, this extends to rent. This is this extends to uh, you know paying collections off stuff like that. How do you see ID verification providers you know adapting to the rise <clears throat> of instant and near instant payments uh, for you know co- consumers on mo- on mass? Because Payments Canada did a study recently, and it's like eighty percent of all transactions for the 38 million people in Canada are digital. And I think like more than half of them are, you know, e-transfers and instant sort of uh, digital payments or, or near instant because we're, we're still not in that space yet. But how do you see, and of course you say, you know, Centrelink is, you know, real time, extremely scalable, all that good stuff. How do you see ID verification providers sort of adapting to the rise beyond just Venmo and Zelle into, I mean, it's just like becoming ubiquitous almost in the payment landscape. Yeah, so I think that there's um, a couple of sort of short-term impacts of this and then some longer-term ones. Um, you know, uh, short-term, the um, the stakes are raised a lot. You know, I think if you think about like an ACH transaction, um, the fact that that takes several days to clear um, is a really big, I mean, you can do a lot in a couple of days and, you know, it allows you to be... Um, in some ways, um, more lenient upfront with some of your identity verification. Um, and then if you review something later and you say, oh, this actually is um, not good, you can go and cancel it and, and get the money back. Um, <clears throat> and with real-time payments, of course, um, you know, it, it's a lot faster and you may not have that sort of luxury. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, for starters, because the, um, the stakes are raised a lot, you'll actually find uh, many organizations being more conservative for starters. Um, just so they don't immediately lose a ton of money uh, from this. Because I think the, the time delay for um, for certain payments is actually a security feature. Um, and we're just removing one of those big security features right now. So you know, I think that's kind of the first, um, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of initial short-term impact. Um, longer term, though, I think you'll find many organizations moving to more um, uh, real-time um, solutions um, like Centrelink um, because they have to, frankly. I mean, the, the standards um, that uh, consumers expect are uh, raising, um, you know, and, um, you know, I think real-time payments is a, a reflection of that. Um, and so I think that service providers and financial institutions will have to, will have to keep up with that. And, and, you know, on the back end, how do you see that happening? So by back end, I mean, you know, B2B, uh, B2G, business to government, uh, stuff like payroll, uh, insurance coverage and payouts, pay time off, stuff like that. Do you see anything on the horizon with that in terms of, you know, uh, avoiding fraud in that area? Um, yeah, I think that you might start to see um, uh, more robust um, fraud prevention um, techniques in areas where previously you wouldn't have seen that. You know, even things like, um, you know, payroll. I mean, signing up for payroll as an employee is pretty straightforward. You basically rely on the... Um, on the employer to do the, um, you know, identity verification and make sure someone isn't signing up with a bad, um, uh, with a bad, uh, or wrong or stolen bank account or, um, what have you. And I think that, um, uh, even in, you know, previously sleepy or backwaters of fraud, um, like that, I think that, um, because you were removing this time, the security feature of having more time, um, I think that you'll start to see that even organizations like that, take uh, more stringent steps for identity verification in order to support those sorts of real-time use cases. 
back to the banking side briefly. Um, again, we know. I mean, it's becoming ubiquitous. You know, real time payments and, and how for, you know ID verification and just general security and fraud. Uh, you know, uh, avoidance providers. You know, will become more ubiquitous in that space. But I think that just like there is with everything, there will always be you know institutions or organizations that lag behind. So you know, for every five you know regional, semi regional, national, or local banks that decide to jump, you know, with both feet into the sort in, into this world, there will always be the, you know, two or three, I don't even know what the right word would be, in, in rural communities or, you know, these sort of legacy financial institutions uh, who are still very much physical, uh, very much against, you know, these sort of modernized banking and uh, fintech practices. Do you see something in the future where it will, again, as you say, it will, it will almost become necessary? I think that over time, people's expectations will increase. Um, I do think, though, the timeline for that is probably longer than many people think, where um, financial service is one of the slowest moving and most conservative um, industries in the economy. And, um, you know, the stickiness of people's relationships with their banks is really, really high. You know, for a lot of people, the bank account, their primary bank is the bank that they first got you know, when they first got their job and needed to deposit their paycheck. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think people's uh, expectations have risen um, significantly with, um, I'd say, especially uh, tech companies with their online um, online service, not even just fintech companies, but tech companies in general. You know, uh, people are familiar with using things like Google or Facebook or um Twitter, you know, any number of these tech companies that have, you know, a really nice online presence and really streamlined flows and so forth. But, um, you know, I think in general, a lot of people are, uh, there's a, there's a material proportion of population that is happy with their, uh, with the, um, financial institutions that serve them. Um, and, uh, you know, even if to the extent they're not happy, like the switching cost is, is pretty high. So I think that over the long run, Absolutely. Um, that, um, you know, different banks and financial institutions will be forced to compete um, to serve people's higher expectations. Um, but I think that it'll be slower than many people expect because of the stickiness of people's relationships with their financial institutions. Do you think this would give fraudsters in the future uh, a, a higher opportunity to sort of retroactively go back and attack people who are still banking with these more legacy sort of conservative uh types of banks or financial institutions because, say, five years down the line, a fraudster has adapted the best way they can, which, you know, hopefully, you know, we, we don't want any fraud at all. But let's say a fraudster does what fraudsters traditionally do and unfortunately learn how to adapt semi-effectively to whatever sort of uh, security measures are in place for, let's say, 80% of people. Would this give them the opportunity to go back and say, well, okay, we're having trouble, you know, committing fraud or committing security or identity theft? With this organization, let's go to this place in, you know, a rural area or a place that has an underbanked, you know, community and attack them there. Do you think that that, unfortunately, would present some opportunities for them? Um, uh, Yes, in a a slightly different way. I think that any organization that doesn't adapt to the changing, any organization that doesn't adapt to the changing fraud and security landscape, um, we'll see some of the things start to happen to them. I mean, quite frankly, a fraudster doesn't care if the new security release is coming up in your, you know, Q3 2022 
you know, new release. I mean, it's, you know, they don't respect your timelines and, um, and don't care. Um, and so organizations, I think, actually are forced to adapt uh, much more quickly to fraud and security issues than they are to uh, customer demand. Um, and so I think it's absolutely the case. Any institution that doesn't adapt to the changing security landscape um, will be taken by fraudsters for, uh, I think, a pretty significant amount if they have any kind of open holes or vulnerabilities. Now, whether that's, you know, um, uh, banks in more rural areas that are serving um, more of the underbanked people, um, I think it just depends on, um, you know, whether those banks adapt uh, better um, security uh, features or security features that keep up with, uh, with uh, changes in fraud and security. Um, but I definitely think that banks that lag behind in general, um, you know, regardless of where they are, uh, will suffer these kinds of issues. Mm. All right. And uh, last question here. Uh, what are your just general predictions for 2022? It can be broad, narrow, you know, I mean, have some fun with it. If you, you know, if this is even a fun topic, I don't know, but uh, just, <laughs> what, you know, what are your general predictions? What do you see from your, you know, subject matter expert sort of perspective happening? Yeah, well, we talked already about one of them for um, uh, fraud and identity, where I definitely think fraudsters uh, will be more aggressive and more creative off of the, uh, they're hugely successful 2021. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, some other ones I was thinking about, um, I think that um, uh, 2022 will really be the year when uh, fintechs are really start to get mentioned um, in the same breath as the largest banks in the United States. Yeah. Um, where, you know, right now, if you think about the top 10 banks, you know, it's all brands that have been around for, I mean, Capital One is the youngest major bank in the country. Um, and, you know, even Capital One is, uh, you know, it was started in, uh, you know, a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I think that, uh, I think 2022 was the year where, you know, in, in multiple different categories, whether that's for uh, traditional banking or uh, credit cards or um, uh, auto lending or uh, purchase finance, uh, fintechs will really start to be considered as equals with the uh, uh, the more traditional uh, banks that are out there. So that's one prediction I'll have. Um, another one is I think 2022 will also have unprecedented, um, for fintech companies, 2022 will um, lead to unprecedented customization for each customer. Um, if you look at a number of new fintech providers that have popped up, um, they're going very, very deep into different um, sorts of customer use cases and into different types of customers, um, you know, where there are now um, banks that really serve independent contractors um, or banks that uh, um, serve different uh, segments of the population that focus on um, uh, immigrants or students or, um, you know, even different ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that um, this kind of specialization for different uh, different types of customers and their unique use cases, I think is an amazing thing. Uh, it allows uh, people that have different uh, financial needs to be best served by uh, companies that really understand them and have designed for those specific use cases um, in mind. Um, but I think that uh, in 2022, that will only continue. And in fact, I think that um, some banks will even allow you to like customize your banking experience to you personally and, um, you know, to what's important to you and to what, um, uh, you know, what your specific financial needs are, even beyond just 
um, you know, what your job is or um, your affinity group or, or things like that. You've been listening to The Buzz, a bank automation news podcast. Thank you for your time and be sure to visit us at bankautomationnews.com for more automation news. You can also follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Please don't hesitate to rate this podcast on your podcast platform of choice. 